Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the intense speculation over missiles that landed five kilometres inside of Poland near the Ukraine border, killing two at a rural farm. With talk of NATO invoking Article 5 ridiculously premature since the facts aren't in yet, it could have been a deliberate Russian strike that went astray, or a Russian missile intercepted by Ukraine, or Ukrainian anti-aircraft missiles fired at Russian cruise missiles. Joining us to discuss the broader issues in this war that is going well for Ukraine and poorly for Russia as top U.S. national security officials meet with their Russian counterparts is Michael Weiss, news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. He's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Then we'll look into the just-announced FBI probe into the killing of a Palestinian journalist and U.S. citizen that appears to have a lot to do with an evolving relationship between congressional Democrats and Israel, particularly now that Netanyahu is leading a new extreme right-wing Israeli government. Joining us is Zaha Hassan, a human rights lawyer and fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Middle East program, where her research focuses on Palestinian-Israeli peace, the use of international legal mechanisms by political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and a senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiation team during Palestine's bid for U.N. membership, and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. Then finally, just ahead of Trump's 9 p.m. Eastern announcement from the ballroom of Mar-a-Lago that he is running for president in 2024, we'll speak with Dr. Alan Francis, a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He is the author of the award-winning international bestseller Saving Normal and the reference work Essentials for Psychiatric Diagnosis, and his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, and we will discuss Trump's determination to make himself relevant again and dominate our politics for the next two years. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Michael Weiss, the news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed 
the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Weiss. Good to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the meeting that took place in Istanbul, brokered by the Turkish President uh, Erdogan, between the U.S. head of the CIA, Ambassador Burns, and the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, Nadishkin. Apparently, there's not much of a readout on it. They weren't conducting negotiations. They made that clear. But they were trying to, I guess, limit uh, nuclear threats and the possibility of nuclear escalation. What's your takeaway from the meeting? I mean, you know, at the worst moments, the, the, the nadir of the Cold War, the Americans and the Soviets, now the Russians, uh, always talk to each other. Um, it's kind of a myth that we like to um, subscribe to whenever there's any kind of frost in the relationship or there's, in this case, I mean, a proxy war being fought in Europe that um, that the channels of communication don't remain open. That, that, that's just simply false. They always do. Um, there was prior reporting that Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was also in conversation, I think, with uh, Nikolai Patrushev, who's the chairman of the Russian National Security Council. Um, you've seen ongoing progress in getting at least the Americans and the Russians to sit down to discuss and relitigate the START treaty. Um, so this this comes at a, at a point where, yeah, I mean, you know, Ukraine is is winning on the battlefield and, and not just winning. I mean, really humiliating the Russian military, um, the latest um, being the rather calamitous withdrawal from Kherson, the first provincial capital that fell to the Russians, the only provincial capital that they've um, managed to uh, take since February 24th and in, in an area that they had claimed to have annexed in late September. Um, so it doesn't really surprise me. Uh, and it, it's what you would expect. I mean, you know, the Biden administration has sort of had two different lines of rhetoric about potential for Russian escalation. On the one hand, very soberly and cautiously, they've emphasized U.S. intelligence has seen no untoward activity with respect to the use of strategic uh, nuclear weapons, um, or for that matter, so-called tactical nuclear weapons, which has been another concern, if not a bugbear in this whole conflict. Uh, on the other hand, Biden has said, you know, this remains a, a threat and this remains something that we we need to, to keep an eye and ear on. Um, and I think he likened it to the worst moment since the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is something I probably wouldn't have done myself, but so be it. So it, all of this is to say, none of this should surprise anyone. I mean, this is this is sort of par for the course of great power diplomacy. Well, of course, it's very likely that there was a discussion over the jailing of Brittany Griner, the U.S. basketball star, has been moved to a penal colony, mm -hmm. um, and also Paul Whelan as well. Today, Russia's ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Antonov, is meeting with White House officials to discuss the treatment of Russians in U.S. prisons. So do you think there's a prisoner swap? There's, there's been talk of it for some time. There has, and last I heard and last I wrote about, the, the, the kind of the key factor was the Americans releasing Victor Boot, one of the most notorious international arms dealers, a former GRU officer, 
uh, somebody that the Russians have made no secret about wanting back quite badly for whatever reason. And I'll leave it to your listeners to make their own interpretation on that, that front. Um, but it seemed that the U.S. had put him on the negotiating table and the Russians said no. Uh, evidently, they wanted more. So, yeah, I mean, whenever you have American citizens in, in Russian I shouldn't say custody, I should say captivity. I mean, as you mentioned, Brittany Griner is being sent to a labor camp. Um, it is, you know, the goal of the U.S. government to do the utmost to, to try and get them back. Um, but again, you know, the, the Russians feel um, perhaps correctly so that they've got, you know, two cards up their sleeves because of that fact and that the Americans will probably do more or give give, give people who are more valuable to the Russians uh, up in exchange for essentially um, civilian hostages. I mean, I know that they've accused Paul Whelan of being an intelligence officer, but there's been really no indication of that being the case. In fact, given his, um, I forget what it was, it wasn't a dishonorable discharge, but it was sort of, he had been accused of, of theft when he was in the US Armed Forces. I mean, given that track record, uh, if you know anything about intelligence, that's sort of a do not pass go for recruitment to the CIA or any U.S. intelligence agency. So I, I find it extremely unlikely he was in Russia spying. So given that what happened at uh, the G20 conference in Bali, Indonesia, where the foreign minister of Russia, Lavrov, went to hospital and came back, it's almost as if he just didn't want to hear the browbeating he was getting from the other G20 heads of state, which have really isolated Russia, and, isol and Russia's being isolated even further, the United Nations, mm -hmm. um, and being held responsible for the human suffering in Ukraine. So how do you think this is impacting the Kremlin? Yeah, I mean, you don't even have to take um, neutral ground like, uh, like, like the, the, the conference at Bali. I mean, look at Putin's treatment or the, the treatment he received in Kazakhstan a few weeks ago. I mean, this was this was a meeting of, of all of the sort of heads of, of the Central Asian republics and, and also Turkey. Uh, and, and famously now for the second time, uh, President Erdogan, who, as you mentioned, is sort of straddling the east-west divide, uh, as Turkey is, has been wont to do throughout the 20th century. And so they do it in the 21st. But uh, President Erdogan kept Putin waiting which is a power play that Putin is is famous for doing. Um, and also there was, I forget who it was, uh, another head of state uh, dressed him down, uh, which is unprecedented. And, and the look on his face sort of said it all. So if, if Putin can't even find a favorable reception in his own backyard and in his own, um, I don't like the term sphere of influence, but so be it, I'll use it. Uh, you know, then how is he going to be received at an, an international forum where I mean, indeed, you know, the, the leaders of all major NATO EU countries were going to be in attendance and they were going to make a point of ostracizing and isolating him. So I think it was actually a very smart decision for him not to go. But Putin's answer to this international rebuke is to rain missiles down on Ukraine and killing civilians. Well, I mean, his, he didn't need an, an answer to a rebuke to do that. He's been doing that since February 24th. Um, you know, I mean, this is just the Russian way of it's not even warfare i mean it's 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 state terrorism raining missiles on civilian infrastructure trying to uh, force the ukrainians into a prostrate position after one of their most significant and strategic battlefield victories uh, in the last eight months um it's 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 yes i mean he, he just doesn't seem to care uh about uh, you know any kind of impending cost although he does care about his stature 
and and the perception of himself as a strong man in charge of a great power in the making. So I, I think, again, for him to be personally humiliated abroad, outside of Russian Federation territory, um, would be a bridge too far. So what do you think Lavrov and other officials, like Narishkin, even though we remember that humiliating video of mm-hmm. of him being dressed down in front of Putin like yep. a schoolboy, if there, any of them or collectively have any influence, I'm wondering what's going on in terms of what appears to be a civil war between the Ministry of Defense and the defense, and I take it the intelligence establishment, and this mercenary leader, Prigozhin, who really seems to be making a move to be a political figure. I mean, he's defending this absolutely disgusting video of the Wagner group murdering a guy that they consider to be a defector on camera, just beating him to death. And that's great for, as far as he's concerned. And now the nationalists led by Prigozhin, in, in, who has traction in, in the Russian state media, you know, all saying, how come we didn't, you know, lob a missile on Zelensky parading around in the open there in Kherson? That's our territory. So there's a massive amount of delusion going there. And the nationalists believe that the answer is to, is to just get more ruthless. And I'm wondering what's happening on the other side. Are they trying to find a way out of this mess? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to be a Kremlinologist in 2022, and I, I tried not to be. Um, civil war might be overstating it only slightly. Uh, since Putin has come to power, there have been clans, there have been factions, there have been sort of um, congeries of, of boyars and, and what's known as the Siloviki, who have been trying to compete with and, and outfox one another. I'd say that the war has probably only accelerated or heightened that power tension and dynamic um, in Moscow. And yeah, I mean, one of the more interesting developments in the last several months has been to see Prigozhin and also Ramzan Kadyrov, the warlord president of Chechnya, become the, uh, the, the hawk party, right? Um, catering to the ultranationalists, the people who think that Russia has played this a little too kittenishly and should be using or lobbying nukes and all the rest of it. Um, you know, Prigozhin, prior to this conflict, and, and maybe even still, had no constituency of which to speak of, right? Up until recently, he denied to the point of taking people to court who accused him of being in charge and the, the, the financier of the Wagner group. Um, he also took credit, by the way, for interfering in the 2016 presidential election, something he had also um, said there was no there there, even though he had been in, indicted and sanctioned by the U.S. government for it. Uh, so it, it seems he, he's, he does seem to be jockeying for, if not a political career, then more uh, political leverage or more favor uh, by Putin. I mean, I remain skeptical of, of how much Prigozhin can really bite off of that apple um, before he himself is sidelined or even possibly killed, taken out in some way. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is absolutely the case that the more conventional standard bearers of the Ministry of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, Valery Garasimov, who's the, uh, the essentially their chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, they have been just absolutely uh, excoriated by uh, Russian military bloggers, very hawkish or altruist elements on social media. And I think Prigozhin and Kadyrov are, are playing into that as best they can. And you have to add Alexander Dugin to this. I mean, he's the ultra-nationalist. His, yeah. his recent rant against Putin 
was extraordinarily pointed. It was. I'm, and and uh, although, I mean, I have to say, you know, Dugin commands far more attention, I think, in the West than he does in, in Russia itself. I mean, th this, this, this term... Uh, that's used in the Western press, particularly the tabloid press, that he's Putin's brain, I think is grossly overstated. Uh, Dugin is a holdover of 1990s-style Russian revanchism, and he's been used as a tool um, in rather the same way that um, uh, Zyrdanovsky, the former Russian ultranationalist and the head of the perfectly misnamed Liberal Democratic Party of Russia had been used as a, as a tool or a foil. Um, essentially, I see Dugin as somebody who, whose, whose rhetoric and whose philosophy can be borrowed uh, when needed, but is also there to remind people, particularly in the West, that um, if, you, if, you, if you don't like the cut of Putin's jib, wait till you see who comes next. Right. In other words, you know, after me, the deluge kind of thing. Uh, so Dugin sort of stands as the most fascistic element uh, within, I suppose, Russian intellectual circles, the, 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 the philosopher king of Eurasianism, the guy who thinks that Russian empire needs to reassert itself well beyond, by the way, the, the territory of Ukraine. Um, I mean, so, you know, his, his Novorossiya doctrine from 2014, 2015, one could argue has now be, become a matter of state policy. But the extent to which he is influencing Putin or has any say, in what uh, Putin does, I, I think it, there's very little evidence for that. But Michael Weiss, there's, there's something of an irony here, though, that the far-right nationalists that we're talking about, their political position is that part of their political argument is that the reason that we're doing poorly in Ukraine is because of corruption and the lack of plurality in our politics and the lack of choice and the fact that we have a dictatorship in the Kremlin, in a curious way, they share the same attitudes as the Russian liberals, even though I don't think there's too many of the Russian liberals left. And most of the talented young Russians, uh, men, just left the country. Mm. So, I mean, there are complaints coming from those quarters about the need for real democracy and to get rid of the dictatorship in the Kremlin. Yeah, but I mean, re real democracy and by their lights is get rid of this guy and then install somebody who makes him look like a liberal Democrat and then right. perhaps have him have that person just permanently in place. You know, it's it's as you're speaking, it, it reminds me a lot of the criticism that was heaped upon Alexei Navalny, the leader of the Russian opposition now imprisoned in his own gulag uh, and who had been the target of state assassination at least three times, according to an investigation by Bellingcat. Navalny in 2010, uh, maybe a little bit before then, um, had a strategic uh, agenda because at this time there was really no, there was no Bolotna movement, there was no credible or mainstream opposition. And so his way of, of appealing to exactly this element was to say, instead of directing your ire and fury against ethnic minorities and the Jews and so on. He was he was talking to the far right. He attended what was known as the Russian marches, which is, I mean, essentially a neo-Nazi you know, demonstration. He said, why don't you focus on how this cabal of crooks and thieves and kleptocrats have been raping the state and stealing the money from your own people and your own country? If you claim to be patriotic, 
this should be your your focus. And he, you know, Navalny took a lot of heat for that and was assailed as a, a far right extremist himself. But, you know, that was essentially his his political strategy before he could appeal to the ordinary man in the street, right? So th this element has always existed. And as I said, you know, Putin has indulged the far right and allowed them to proliferate, allowed them to um, wield a kind of um, critical or oppositional politics as a as a, a means of scaremongering to to convince the West that you know he's the the best of all possible worlds that Russia has to offer. Now again, you know, I think Ukraine has been very clarifying in a number of ways, but not least of which is upending a lot of conventional wisdom about well, first and foremost, Russian military prowess, but also the way things work inside Russia. I mean, you know, Putin does remain a kind of neo-Czar, but um, I would say his position is a lot weaker than we had assumed. Um, whatever is driving or motivating his decision-making, I mean, the most pragmatic thing and the most rational and sane thing he did was assenting to the withdrawal from her son without putting up a concerted fight, because that would have essentially destroyed that city. It would have destroyed all of the western bank of the Dnipro River. Um, and that indicates that perhaps uh, voices of caution and voices of sanity are beginning to get through to him for the first time in eight or nine months. So just in the last minute then, Michael Weiss, Putin doesn't seem to have any alternative strategy except to double down. He's not interested, I think, in any kind of compromise. He wants to sort of keep this thing going, maybe for at least another year, to weaken Western resolve and NATO resolve. I don't see any glimmer of diplomacy or, or hope on the horizon. But on the other hand, he's got to be disappointed. They were really counting, if you followed Russian media, they were really counting on the Republicans are taking the House and right. uh, and that they, they would cut funds to Ukraine. And that's highly unlikely now, right? Yes. But I mean, I, I would just to, to your point that that there's no alternative for him except to go all in or, or to, to keep going all in. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think this is another piece of conventional wisdom that or, 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 or mythology that we cling to in, in the face of all available evidence. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, Kherson was one of four regions in Ukraine annexed in September, late September, through some series of coercive sham referenda, uh, the, the results of which you, you actually see on the streets now of Kherson with jubilant Ukrainians greeting their liberating army, right? So this this idea that the, 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 the citizens of this region voted 80, uh, upwards of 85% or whatever it was to join Russia is just completely nonsense. But he withdraws from Kherson. Uh, and the Kremlin, in a kind of weird, low farce, says this changes nothing. This territory remains part of Russian Federation territory, even though they don't control it. And now they've they've pulled back on the other side of the river, uh, and they can't cross the river again because they've blown up all the bridges uh, that bisect the Dnipro. So, you know, Russia is a state of of, of unreality or or surreality, if you like, and and one of the I suppose benefits for the West of Putin's dictatorship is that he can simply shrug his shoulders and order the changing of the television channel. I mean, uh, the, the, the scholar um, Timothy Snyder had a very excellent essay several months ago about this. This, you know, this idea we need to provide Putin with an off-ramp or give him some face-saving gesture. Well, if anything, we've been rubbing his face in his own failure for the past several months. 
uh, a massive un unforeseen counteroffensive in Kharkiv, which the U.S. had been wargaming with the Ukrainians. So obviously Washington knew this was happening, but none of the rest of us did. Uh, now this major achievement in, in southern Ukraine, in Kherson, he keeps losing. And rather than unleash World War III or drop tactical nukes, I mean, he lobs cruise missiles at Ukrainians who, you know, some of them die, but the 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 resiliency and the will to continue fighting remains undiminished. Uh, and he just tells his own people that nothing has, has, has changed it. Facts on the ground do not correspond to the reality that his regime is forcing down their throats. So in that way, um, it's actually quite convenient for the West to keep pressing forward and not to, to uh, lower the temperature or certainly not to diminish security assistance. Putin can endure defeat. Um, and people who tell you otherwise, again, have to account for how he's been losing so badly um, without, in essence, lashing out in a manner that, that cannot be withstood or sustained by the Ukrainians themselves. And even, by the way, if he did use a tactical nuke, um, I mean, I think that would be probably the beginning of the end of his regime. Uh, the Chinese are now saying they're completely against the use of WMD. The Indians have said the same thing. So he would be far more isolated. But even the use of even that dire recourse would not fundamentally alter the calculus on the battlefield. A tactical nuke was not going to make Ukraine's army, I'm sorry, Russia's army uh, more capable or give it more willpower or more or, or higher morale. All of these deficiencies remain and in fact grow worse. I mean, they're mobilizing people, you know, upwards of 50 years old who don't want to fight don't have battlefield experience, or if they do, it was from Christ, the, the Afghan war. I mean, and a lot of them are being killed the minute they're injected into the conflict. Many of them are probably also deserting, if not defecting to the Ukrainian side. I, I wait to see, you know, numbers on, on that front, but nothing really is changing. There, there is no kind of miracle cure for what ails, uh, you know, Russia's military performance. Right. But as you say, Putin has the ability to turn a defeat into a victory in terms of propaganda. And that's fine. I'm I'm more than happy. I think a lot of Ukrainians would would be very um, would be ecstatic if Putin <laughs> were driven out of all of Ukraine, including, by the way, Crimea or the occupied territories of Donbass from 2015, that era, and you know decided to throw a big parade in, in Red Square and declare you know absolute victory that he has vanquished the forces of NATO. I mean, as long as Ukraine remains a cohesive independent, sovereign nation. Ukrainians have defeated their in, invading army and their, their occupying regime. Putin can tell his people whatever whatever he likes. It has no bearing or consequence at all in, in, in you know, in Kyiv. And Zelensky said that, right? He gave an interview and, and he was asked, you know, do you see this ending, you know, with Putin's demise? And, and can you deal with a Russia that with Putin in, in, in the driver's seat? And his response was, I don't care. What happens in Russia is not my concern. What happens in Ukraine is my concern. Right. Well, Marco Weiss, you've given us a lot to think about, and I appreciate it very much. Sure. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Weiss, who's a news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. 
We can take a brief station break and back looking into the just-announced FBI probe into the killing of a Palestinian journalist and U.S. citizen that appears to have a lot to do with an evolving relationship between congressional Democrats and Israel, particularly now that Netanyahu is leading a new extreme right-wing Israeli government. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Zaha Hassan, who is a human rights lawyer and fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Middle East program, where her research focuses on Palestinian-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanisms for political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and legal and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for UN membership and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to the quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zaha Hassan. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, what do you make of the FBI opening a probe into the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, who was both uh, a journalist and an American citizen? There's a certain amount of speculation that, that... This has a lot to do with the Democratic Party's evolving relationship with Israel, particularly now that Netanyahu's back in power. How do you see it? I don't think that is necessarily uh, what is going on here. I I think what's happened is that you have an amazing historic number of members of Congress who are deeply concerned about the fact that an American citizen was killed by a a foreign government, an ally of the U.S., and there has been no uh, independent U.S. investigation into this. And I think the pressure has increased over time with uh, every passing day because of the situation on the ground in uh, Israel-Palestine, the the, uh, deteriorating security situation. And I also think that this change in the Israeli government, this new governing coalition that's going to bring in religious Zionism, the uh, religious Zionist parties into uh, a coalition, parties that call for the, you know, ethnic cleansing from the river to the sea, is making it uh, is opening space, perhaps for for the U.S. government to to take actions because they do want to send, I think, some message to this uh, new Israeli government that, you know, business as usual is not is not going to be uh, acceptable. Well, there's a, a bipartisan group of senators led by John Ossoff, the Democrat, who, who is Jewish, along with Mitt Romney, who's always been pro-Israel. Biden himself has always been very pro-Israel. And you also have bills in Congress being introduced, and you've got pro Israel Democrats such as Foreign Relations Committee Chair Menendez and Senator Cory Booker calling for investigations along with Senator Chris Van Hollen, Chris Murphy, Patrick Leahy and Dick Durbin. So there's a certain weight of particularly Democrats weighing in on this. So yeah, yeah the- I, absolutely. Uh, that's the case. But I think what what 
is the difference here is that we're talking about American citizen, an American citizen who happened to be a, a very prominent journalist, a very well respected journalist, who was killed in condition and you know under in a situation in which you know it looks very much like she was targeted because she was a member of the press, and we had a number of investigations by um, media outlets and by the UN that point to the fact that, you know, she was repeatedly shot at her and her colleagues in a situation where there was no gunfire uh, exchange going on um, and in which her her colleague that was with her also got hit um, by snipers, snipers that were in close proximity to her and that were using scopes uh, as she was dressed in a press vest uh, and a helmet. So, I mean, I, I think uh, this is more of an issue of the fact that she was a U.S. citizen and that um, and she was a journalist doing her job and, and it, looks, it looks like she was targeted. And so I think that's what's driving things here. Is it, is, does it represent a change in uh, policy towards Israel or a rethinking of the U.S.-Israel relationship? I think it's too early to say that. Because there's a lot that's been going on on the ground uh, recently. There's a lot of issues taking place in terms of the makeup of the Israeli government that is bringing uh, to the fore the fact that we may be looking at, uh, in, in a very short order, forced displacement of a Palestinian population under fog of war uh, circumstances, um, or at least a, a claim of fog of war. And so uh, that th th these trend lines haven't in the past raised uh, concerns uh, sufficient enough to call for a change in U.S. foreign policy. But I think really what the key situation is here is that we're talking about an American now. And, um, and, and I don't think Democrats or Republicans can turn a blind eye when you have a situation in which uh, a foreign, uh, an American journalist is killed. We, are, we take a stand in other contexts like in the Ukraine situation in which uh, journalists are targeted, and it, it uh, doesn't bode well for Republicans or Democrats to turn a blind eye when, it, in fact, it's in a, a, you know, an American uh, in Israel-Palestine that's, that's been uh, killed. Well, shortly after we learned of the FBI investigation into the killing of Sharina Barclay, the 19 House Democrats, led by Representative Andre Carson, introduced the Justice for Shireen Act on Monday, yesterday, they're going to attach it, apparently, to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a must-pass piece of legislation. So it seems like they're pretty serious. Oh, I, absolutely, they're serious. And, you know, you had also half of the Democratic uh, caucus in the Senate. I mean, this is historic. You know, folks don't like to, to take a stand uh, out on a, on a very close ally such as Israel, uh, particularly given uh, the, dom the domestic political considerations that, that go into that. So this is really unprecedented and it's historic. Um, and again, it's, it's because we're looking at a situation in which an American citizen has been killed in very questionable circumstances, to say the least. Well, what we do know is that there's a lot of outrage in Israel, particularly from its uh, right-wing government, and its right-wing press. What do you make of that? Well, look, you know, we can't uh, forget that there is a international criminal court investigation of Israeli officials going on. And there has been a complaint submitted to the ICC specifically on the Shirin Abu Akla case and, and her um, killing. 
And so uh, this FBI investigation could be uh, or could support prosecution of Israeli soldiers and officials who who ordered that sh those shots to be fired at those journalists. So yes, you know, if uh, this FBI in investigation results in a finding that yes, these these uh, Israeli snipers purposefully targeted Shireen and her colleagues, then this could be used in the ICC criminal case. Well, just based upon the forensics, it looks as if she was deliberately targeted by a sniper. She was wearing a bulletproof vest, a ballistic vest, along with a ballistic helmet. So they chose the spot where she wasn't protected, which was her neck. That's that's right. And there's multiple bullets that had, that were fired all around her. So when they didn't get the first shot, they kept firing. They fired at her colleague and shot him. They fired. They continued to fire after she was on the ground to prevent her from getting medical assistance. So it's very uh, hard to imagine uh, a situation in which the FBI doesn't decide that uh, what, what happened was a intentional killing of Shireen and, and shooting of, at her colleagues. So if this is not a coincidence that uh, this is happening now, that Netanyahu's come in with a very extreme right-wing coalition, we know that there's no love lost between Netanyahu and Biden, even though Biden has always been a staunch supporter of Israel. Is there any broader implications in your mind, sir, Hassan, that there's, yeah, a, there's I, something else going on here? I, I do believe that, that the Biden administration wants to, you know, set up some red lines here and to send a message to Benjamin Netanyahu as he's deciding uh, who to uh, offer ministries to in his government. The ultra-nationalist religious Zionist party want the def uh, defense ministry and they want the public security ministry. These two ministries are responsible for policing and the occupation over Palestinians inside the Green Line in Israel and in the occupied territories. It's e extremely dangerous to have a party like Jewish Power that says that they no longer want to just contain the enemy, referring to Palestinians here, they want to eradicate them. So when you have a party talking about eradicating Palestinians, the idea of them holding uh, the, the defense ministry and the public security ministry is extremely troubling. So I, I do believe that the Biden administration, through this, the opening of this FBI investigation, wants to uh, send a message to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu that, that he need be very, very careful about how he decides to uh, pass out uh, portfolios in his new governing coalition. Well, Zaha Hassan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Zaha Hassan, who is a human rights lawyer and fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Middle East program, where her research focuses on Palestinian-Israeli peace, the use of international legal mechanisms for political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for UN membership and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to the quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. We're going to take a restation break and just ahead of Trump's 9 p.m. Eastern announcement from the ballroom of Mar-a-Lago that he's running for president in 2024, we will discuss Trump's determination to make himself relevant again and dominate our politics for the next two years. 
I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Alan Francis, a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, now in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Alan Francis. Always my pleasure, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Dr. Francis. And uh, Donald Trump's making his announcement uh, tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern in the Mar-a-Lago Ballroom, 6 p.m. Pacific time. It's actually when we're off the air. We go on the air at 5 p.m. So we're going to miss what he says, but I think he can make a pretty safe guess. The only uh, interesting speculation is that he may actually have Carrie Lake on stage with him as a perfect MAGA twin. She just lost in Arizona. I hope they run together. <laughs> but uh, what do you expect him to say today or t- tonight? Well, Trump, is, Trump is the most transparent person in the, in the world. And uh, I think it's, you don't have to be a psychiatrist to make predictions about him, even though he, he prides himself on being unpredictable. I think he had to announce tonight, despite his advisors and the Republican leaders trying to get him to postpone it until after the, the Georgia election. He had no choice. For, for one thing, it's his personality. He's a loser. He's a distinct loser in this election, and he has to distract attention from that and prove that he's still credible and that he's still a player. Even more important, DeSantis was a big winner, and um, I think that there's no doubt that Trump's support among the donors, the leaders of the Republican Party, and even his own base, is evaporating very quickly. Polls show that he's dropped 20 points in relation to DeSantis in just the last week. So he has to kill DeSantis's candidacy before it has a chance to start. And my guess is that he probably learned the lesson that complaining about the last election will not win him the next one. So my guess is he will not have a carry lake, that he will not be the usual... Trump whiner and sore loser in this announcement. I could be wrong because his personality is so strong, he may go against his own self-interest. He can be very self-destructive because of his narcissism. But my guess is that he's going to uh, be um, as sober as, as, as Trump can possibly be and convey the idea that he's the king and that anyone who comes after the king uh, must be sure they not miss that the, uh, if DeSantis or any of the other Pence or any of the other uh, candidates uh, thinks that they're going to take him um, you know, without a fight, he's going to do everything to convey that he's the uh, man in charge, that no one around him has a chance, and he'll try to kill off any speculation of competition. I think there are four possible results of this, but we'll discuss that once we, you've had a chance to put in your two cents. Well, I guess my two cents is that how can he spin what just happened in the election? Will he say that the candidates, not that there was a problem with the quality of the candidates as the Senate 
Minority Leader McConnell said that maybe he's, he'll argue that they weren't Trumpy enough. Yeah, I think he'll be blaming other people some, if he mentions it at all. I mean, Trump is an, a master. We tend to underestimate his cunning because he's so stupid. But we should never underestimate his ability to understand his audience and to twist things in his favor. And I think he will come across as a winner, that he won't want so much to apologize for the past or even spin it. The smart play is just to move forward with how great he's going to be in the future. And I think the truth is that it's very likely he will scare off the field. If I had to bet, DeSantis um, is only 44 years old, and fighting Trump is probably not in his interest. It would be a dirty fight. It would destroy the Republican Party. He would be blamed along with Trump. He could bring down Trump in 2024, but he could also bring down himself. And I think that Trump is very clever in announcing tonight before the momentum is irresistible in favor of moving past him and toward DeSantis. I think he's going to scare DeSantis and other candidates off. I think the Mike Pence's of the world might go in, but without much hope of success. And I think that Trump will be able to solidify his base and use it as a hammer against the donors, the evangelical supporters, and people who were having doubts about his electability. Now, the, the, the one red, you know, red flag here is that he could be dethroned easily and quickly if the evangelicals dump him or if the donors dump him. He can't be disarmed by the Republican leaders. They've tried before and that's failed. But if either the donors or the um, evangelicals decide that he's more of a uh, hazard now to their future, you know, greedy donors want someone in there who will win and provide them with deregulation and tax breaks. The evangelicals want someone who will win and provide them with Supreme Court justice appointments from 2024 on. I think if either of those groups are both together decide to dump him, then he's serious, in serious trouble. And I think he knows that. I think they've already reduced expectations for what's going to happen tonight. Um, he invited lots of fancy people. They may not show up. He's talking about this being a Florida-based campaign, not Washington-based. He says it's going to be on a shoestring and that he's going to run as the underdog. So I think he's going to run as kind of the embattled underdog against the Washington elite that have you know, done, done their, their horrible... And I think the, the, the context is really interesting. Biden's been a great president. Uh, maybe not him personally, but the administration that he created has done almost everything right. And somehow or other, Trump has the gift of being able to soil everything and everyone he touches. I think he'll do his best today to, to uh, direct his attention toward Biden, not to DeSantis today. But I think in the weeks to come, he'll be doing his best to undercut DeSantis and scare him off. So already I would assume that the donors are going to abandon him, but he has his own source of income, which is to shake down the MAGA followers. And as for the Christians, so-called Christians, they've stuck with him so far. So clearly it doesn't seem to bother them that he is such a, a mega sinner. But, you know, they've got their own rationale, King Cyrus and all this nonsense. So is he able to then, you know, essentially finance it himself? I would have thought shaking down his base is a finite factor. I mean, you can't, you know, keep going to that well. I don't think that he will have to finance himself if he somehow or other clears the field. So the, the greedy billionaires will go with him if he's the winner, if they realize that either um, DeSantis doesn't have the stuff to topple him 
or that the battle will destroy both, which is the most likely result if there's a battle. Um, I think they'll stick with him even if they have to hold their noses and, and uh, feel ashamed in their families. I think the Christians are ruthless. They're political pros, and they're not worried about someone's morals. They're only worried about whether they can win in their own power. So I think what, what's going to happen over the course of the next month or two will be a shaking out. And, and basically, I don't, I don't see the other candidates as being serious. It's really just DeSantis. And the question that will be settled probably, I think, sooner rather than later is whether DeSantis will, will take him on. And my guess is he won't. As a 44-year-old guy, he has, to his advantage not to get into a fight. I think he, if I'm him and he's smart, he'll stand back. If Trump self-destructs, then he'll be there to be, pick up the pieces. But I don't think he'll fight Trump. So is it possible that Trump will self-destruct in the intervening two years or choke on a Big Mac? He's done a great job of self-destructing the course of the past two years, and I think that there's every possibility that he may self-destruct in the course of the next two. I think the best hope for America is if uh, he doesn't self-destruct, that uh, he the best hope would be he and DeSantis get into a terrific fight and that um, both of them last till the very end and knock each other out, and, and the Democrats walk in. I think if Trump does clear the field, then we're in trouble. Uh, unless he self-destructs between now and the 2024 election, uh, or dies, um, or gets dethroned, if he's a candidate against an 82-year-old Biden, despite Biden's accomplishments, I think that the, it's a very big risk that I wouldn't want to have to, to foresee happening. And the sad thing is that Democrats have not nurtured a, a bench. That, Ian, who would you who who would beat him if not Biden? Well, you're right; they haven't really developed a bench. There are good candidates like Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut, and others. But Biden's going to have to step aside early and start nurturing a bench. And that's the what idea he of running against. Done. Yeah, but the idea that we go back to have a Trump-Biden race would be just such a comment on the paralysis of American politics. Yeah, I, I've been enormously impressed with Biden's appointments, but I was not happy with the way he's toying with whether he's running again. I understand that he has to keep himself relevant. Uh, he'd be a complete lame duck if he said, I'm not running again. But he made it sound like the decision was based on what would be good for Joe Biden not what would be good for America and for the Democratic Party. If I were he, I would have said, instead of, oh, I'll consider it, we'll talk to Jill, we'll blah, 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 and I'm up to it and all that stuff. I think he should have said something like, I really don't care who's the next president of the United States, so long as it's not an extremist, right-wing, radical group of people who are destroying American democracy. And if I'm the best candidate for the, for the Democratic Party to, to preserve our country, certainly I'll, I'll rise to the call. But it's not for me. It's for America. It's not for the Democratic Party. It's for America. And we have this clear and present danger to our democracy and to our values. And we've done a very good job, luckily, this election so that we're not degenerating into autocracy. But the danger is still there. And I'm going to do whatever I can for whoever can be the best candidate in 2024 to make sure that we keep up this momentum. So earlier you were talking about the four points you wanted to make. Have you yeah, made them? Or go, go ahead. Well, let me, sort of, but just to summarize it, I think that what, what are the possible outcomes? So outcome one would be that, that Trump clears the field of DeSantis, that he goes into the election, 
that he'll be weakened by the fact that people are getting tired of this stuff and that he'll be strengthened by the fact that Biden might be the alternative and that the Democrats don't have another, um, at this point, viable candidate. And who knows what would happen in that kind of election. And I think that's probably the most likely thing that will happen, that we'll see another Biden-Trump replay. The second option, the very best for democracy, is an all-out battle between Biden and um not Biden, between DeSantis and Trump, and that they they wipe each other out, and they wipe the Republican Party out for maybe a decade. And really, it is sincerely to be hoped that Trump and DeSantis fight it out, and that DeSantis has the, the courage and the stupidity to get into this election cycle. That's the best outcome for America. I think another possible outcome is that Trump announces, and things go really sour, in his campaign, just as they do in every one of his businesses, every one of his businesses winds up bankrupt. He's never touched a business that doesn't want to wind up bankrupt. And it may be that we're seeing the um, tipping point now of where everyone you know, starts telling him it's, it's, it's over and he drops out. And that's not necessarily a good result because DeSantis is a much stronger, smarter, more disciplined candidate. DeSantis could do much more damage to American democracy than Trump could as president. And so that's not necessarily a good thing if Trump self destructs. The, the, the fourth option is in some ways the, the scariest, and that is that Trump keeps the allegiance of about 20% of the craziest people in America and loses the allegiance of everyone else. Let's suppose that he doesn't get the uh, nomination, that the, the Christian right and the, um, the greedy donors go off in sooner rather than later, and that he's no longer a viable political person. What would he do next? Um, it's conceivable that he'd retire and play golf, but it's equally conceivable he might rile up the troops. And I can picture him inciting political violence in a way that we haven't seen in this country since the Civil War. If he's a um, damaged loser with nothing to lose, he may want to bring down everything with him. And there are enough crazy people out there that we, we have you know, multiple shootings every day um, in this country. That It may get much worse if Trump is, is um, stirring up the pot. So I think there are four outcomes, and the only good outcome would the only sure thing good outcome would be a battle between Trump and DeSantis where they kill each other off. Uh, all the other outcomes have great risks, partly because although the issues are all on the side of the Democrats, probably the economy by them will be on the side of the Democrats if they just don't have um, candidates who are going to appeal to the public. Well, I mean, he is a damaged loser already and a criminal and possibly a traitor. So you just not, po- not possible. You, I would say a traitor. Yeah. <laughs> well, so is Jared Kushner, by the way. He's he's even in many ways even worse. But they still haven't got to him. I mean he's always one step ahead of the sheriff. Now what happens if he's indicted? How does that change the calculus that you just laid out? Yeah, all the signals are they're not going to do it. Um yeah. you know they released stuff yesterday saying that he only wanted to keep the documents at Mar-a-Lago as trophies. He had no business interest in having, being able to tell secrets about Iran's you know, missile system or some unnamed third party's uh, anti-missile defense system. Sounded like Israel to me. That um, you know, they gave him a bill of health on on the uh, leak, not official, but a kind of bill of health. I very much doubt that. Um, 
Merrick Garland and the DOJ, if they've waited this long, and I think what part of what he's announcing tonight is to really signal to them where the fuss he could make about it. And that would be fighting words for the people on the street. Oh, they're trying to put our guy in prison because they don't want to see him save America, stop those pedophiles and all that stuff. So I, I have a feeling they're going to back. Hey, look at what's happened so far. He's been a crook for all these years, and he's never been hurt by it. Right. And well, what about the, the January the 6th committee? They just were running out of time here in the last couple of minutes. Will the January yeah, the 6th people lay a, feeling, a finger on him? Yeah, I just have a feeling that, that um, he's going to lawyer up and he's now giving them the political notice that if you do this to a candidate, you're um, obstructing, not, not, he's obstructing justice, but they're obstructing the political process will be the argument on the Republican end that they're using politics to um, to, to, to somehow or other hamstring the profit of the right. And I think that the, the opportunity was lost. I think everything needed to be done on a much faster uh, schedule. And the, the timing now is just completely dreadful. And that's, I think, a big part of why he's announcing tonight to um, set down a standard against DeSantis and sta- set down a standard against the DOJ and all the other, the Georgia and um, the, the New York State and all the other things that are being held over his head. So I think he's he's not good at anything except riling up the mob and getting uh, somehow coming out clean after he bankrupts companies. And what he's doing now is bankrupting America. But past performances, he'll get away with it. So just in closing, uh, your latest book, Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump. So we're in the age of Trump. I thought for a while we might be out of the age of Trump. I frankly hate talking about this guy. He still haunts us. It's absolutely extraordinary that a president could lead a mob to attack the capital, the citadel of American democracy, to try and overturn the will of the people in a coup attempt. And instead of being ostracized by the Republican Party, he's been rewarded. And indeed, the four scenarios that you laid out indicates that they're prepared to even reward him again with another term. So what has happened to America? Why, why well, can't they stop career, this? You know, my whole career has been trying to have empathy for people, and I've treated and, and evaluated tens of thousands of patients, and I've usually been able to have empathy for almost every few exceptions, for almost every one of them. I have absolutely no empathy, intellectual or emotional, no understanding of how people can support Trump. The history Do you have an explanation there? Do I have an explanation? I really don't. I mean, all the explanations that are given, either economic or ideological or demographic, I I think the the absurdity of anyone seeing him as a savior goes beyond my capacity for empathy. Well, Dr. Alan Francis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Alan Francis, who's a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity. A psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past